Welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 446, featuring Claudia Cristavo, uh, who is the head of Google Brand Studios and Social Lab at APAC. A uh, very fascinating person, has an incredibly diverse background, especially in the arts uh, and her education there. Uh, really, really very knowledgeable and really cool to, to hear her backstory. I met her, of course, over at THU Japan, uh, which I talked about last time. Uh, great event, really cool event. And not only that, but uh, they were able to set up this really incredible uh, uh, camera system for us to be able to have it on four cameras. And it looked really, really professional. So I really want to thank the guys at THU for setting that up and really lining up these incredible speakers that were there. Okay, so what did we talk about with Claudia? So she talked on, about an art form, a Japanese art form called uh, Kintsuki. And I believe that's how it's pronounced. But really what this is, is an art form of putting back together broken pottery in, uh, and how to rejoin it with uh, uh, the special resin uh, and also gold infused into it. Uh, and it's kind of like this very interesting art form of thinking about this process. Now, she used this as a metaphor for a lot of the things that she was talking about in terms of story and brand and all those other things. Uh, and it was really kind of interesting to hear that process of what it is um, and some of the stories that she told during the uh, the conference itself. Uh, we also talked about other things, obviously. We talked about, you know, embracing the flaws in your, in your narrative and thinking about your story and your own brand as an artist and as a creative person. Uh, and also, what does it mean to have a brand? We get into things like uh, Andy Warhol and Jeff Koons. Uh, but it really does embrace a lot of things in terms of uh, creative brand and what we do. So I actually even been thinking about this ever since then for the whole time and relating it to my passion of fly fishing and fly tying. I think you guys all know about that and understanding how does that relate to all the things I do, including um, the way that I approach my art, the way that I approach storytelling, uh, and even uh, the way that I think about shaders and technology. I think all of a sudden she started to make me realize that it's all kind of related in some interesting way. Uh, and I really thought it was a fascinating conversation. So uh, Claudia was great and it was really cool to see her there. Okay, we have a couple of announcements. Uh, uh, product announcements in this can be seen. Just go to chaos.com for that information. Uh, Vantage 2 has update one and it is a huge update. Honestly, it might be one of our biggest ones. Uh, it includes DLSS 3.5, which radically speeds up our rendering. Uh, and it also includes uh, a new kind of uh, denoising system called ray reconstruction, which has just completely changed away the look of Vantage in terms of how clean and how fast it renders. Uh, really opens up the door to thinking about what real-time ray tracing is and where it's going to go uh, and uh, really, really important stuff there. So, and this is with full ray tracing, as you guys know, in Vantage, this is not uh, ray tracing, hybrid ray tracing. Uh, so uh, more about that uh, by going talking about events, uh, we can go to chaos.com slash events for all of our event news. I will be going to the VIEW conference, which is happening October 15th through the 20th in Italy. Uh, I will not only be going there and recording podcasts, but I'll also be a speaker. And I think my talk is on the 19th. You'll have to check in, uh, on that. Uh, but one of the things I'm going to be talking about is specifically about ray tracing, uh, my history with ray tracing, uh, how it has evolved into my passion for real-time ray tracing, and what this has done for 
uh, what we're looking at in terms of uh, virtual production. Uh, I have been very passionate about virtual production, and uh, this is very, very exciting time with Vantage and sort of showcasing some new technology that we're developing in that space of virtual production uh, inside the Innovation Lab. I uh, can't wait to talk about it and to show you guys what's going on. So just go to uh, chaos.com slash events and make sure and check it out. Again, that's the VIEW conference happening October 15th through the 20th. Uh, now, if you guys want to know more about the podcast, you guys know what to do. You just go to uh, chaos.com slash CG Garage. Uh, that's our main page where all of our podcasts are. But if you'd like to follow us on Facebook, that's also good. Uh, just go to facebook.com slash CG Garage Podcast. And if you'd like to watch us, again, like I said, this is a pretty cool podcast that we did with our good friends at THU. You can check us out at youtube.com slash chaos group TV, which is where we put all of our videos, including the podcast. Uh, now, if you have ideas of podcasts and you want to suggest more, or you want to you know give us a comment of any kind, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is labs at chaos.com. But for now, please enjoy episode number 446 with our good friend, Claudia. Welcome to another CG Garage, where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're going to fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. Uh, okay, so uh, I saw your talk yesterday and it was absolutely really, really fascinating. But I know you have a very diverse background, <laughs> lots of lots of different things. What is your origin story? What got you to where you are now? Like, what's that journey that you went through from, you know, the early ages of mm. education to what you wanted to do? <laughs> um, yeah, I uh, thank you. <laughs> I started out by wanting to, I think, write stories as a kid. Okay. And then eventually I studied film. You did? I did, yes. Where did you study film? I studied film in Lisbon and then in Copenhagen. Okay. Um, actually in Hoskilde, at Hoskilde University, which is in Denmark. Right. And then I um, ended up out of that becoming a copywriter in advertising. Oh, okay. Um, but when I became a copywriter, I uh, quickly decided to go to Amsterdam because I wanted to work in brands that were doing big stories and big narratives and for more markets. Markets, okay. Uh, so across various languages, etc. So it was more the mar marketing side of... Yes, yeah, yes, okay. yes, yes. And so I ended up working for Nike. For Nike, okay. From Amsterdam for, uh, for a while and for uh, most of Europe. Right. And um, in the meantime, I decided to study art which I hadn't done. So I went to the Rietveld Academy in Amsterdam for four years. Okay, after, while you were doing that at the same yes, time? Yes, yes, okay. after work. And eventually I, um, yeah, I took that uh, art degree. And, um, and I think that that led me to creative direction because then I felt like I could really oversee the totality of a creative output, not just words, but the whole visual and storytelling, you know, motion part as well. And were you doing mostly like art history or practicing art as well? Oh, no, it was practicing, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so what kind of art were you doing? What were you I doing? was doing a lot of video and photography installations. Okay. 
Uh, I was represented by a gallery, and I did a number of pianales out of out of right. all of that out of, out of that uh, impetus. And what happened next was that I was invited to go to Tokyo for work. Um, I stayed in Tokyo for uh, a couple of years, and then I think I'm missing something in between. But then I decided to do um, a master's in fine arts in uh, Saint Martin's. Okay. So I continued to do different things at the same time. And then eventually I was invited to come back to Tokyo as a global creative director. Okay, so... It's so a little bit what... I probably missed something in the middle, but yes. Something okay, so tell of. me about your role as a uh, global creative director. Uh, yeah, it, it's general creative direction. <laughs> right. Uh, just for more markets. So at some point, the job is essentially the same. It depends a little bit on the size of the teams or the size or the scope you have. Sure. Um, and it includes uh, this one in particular included a lot of TV advertising and a lot of print advertising. Um, but then, of course, over time, what I found interesting is to be a creative director in situations that involve changing a space or changing a business even or a brand or making completely different things like exhibitions instead of ads. Right. Um, and that's been possible, luckily, throughout my career. So I've, I've really thrived in not doing just one thing, even though because it start, started probably with storytelling, with copywriting and with script writing, sure. I feel very attached to the idea of story. And I, it's, it's been very useful. Right. So the story is the fundamental part of I think so, doing. yeah, yeah. That's it, the glue. It's, it's the main tool for most things, I would say. True. Mm. Um, so you talk about brand, mm. right, in that sense. So how do you define a, a brand in some ways? The way that you, what's the proper way to define a brand? Well, you won't have as many answers as you have people working in marketing. Um, there's one easy definition that's going around at the moment, which is the idea that brand is what others feel and say about you when you're not there. Um, right. And that's pretty applicable maybe to even a broader idea of brand. So yeah, it's, it's a useful one to think of. So you need to feed enough of, uh, of uh, ongoing uh, interaction as well as peaks of interaction to create that sense that most people would know what, what you're about. Right. And how do, you, how do you define it? Is that through story? Is this, you make a story and of that brand? That's essentially building stories continuously from, I mean, in, in, the, in the area of marketing and advertising, it's, it's easy to say. It's through the logo all the way through everything else. Right. And the more touch points attach themselves to the same story in the best way, the stronger the brand you have. Yeah. So the idea is to be thorough and to be consistent and to, um, in, in a good way, to deviate very little from what essentially you're saying while finding many new, fresh ways of saying it. Right. Yeah. I find it interesting, like this year, there has been several movies that I call corporate brand movies mm. that have come out, right? So Air came out, mm. which is a story about a brand. Yeah. Uh, there was another movie called Blackberry, which mm. is a story about a brand. And then there's Barbie, <laughs> which yeah. is also a story about true, a brand. True. What do you think about that, about the fact that suddenly brand has become a much bigger brand, much bigger story that people try mm. to tell? Yeah, I wonder if, if, if that's uh, an, an announcement or if it's like it's hit the peak already. 
um, because so many of those are coming out. I haven't seen any of those, to right. be fair. Um, but I think brands are a big why, they're valuable for a reason. They sure. are a big why, um, uh, how people interact with the world. A big part of what we are as consumers, a big choice that we make is what we consume. Uh, and it's a fact that many products are not differentiated enough and without a story to hold them together or to hold them to a bigger meaning, um, they wouldn't have a preference necessarily. So that's, right. that's largely what you attach to, to brands. So I'm not surprised that the, the market reflection of billions in value is finally reflected in, in narratives that we understand and that people want to know how that gets done. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's fascinating also that brands uh, are almost more powerful than films when it comes to people's passions. Like I'll give mm. you an example, Apple. Mm. People are extraordinarily passionate about Apple and they, mm. will, they will go to, they'll die for that brand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I find it interesting that they, and they hold their own narratives about what that brand is all about. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the job. I think that uh, we associate the word brand to a corporate construct. But in fact, brand has always been Parma ham from Parma, right. right? The brand has always existed. It's a signifier of quality and it's a signifier of a certain level of um, quality, taste, um, uh, I guess, uh, um, status, uh, and a number of other things. So brand itself, if we take away the word brand and we call it something else, it just means that you have a shortcut to understand a product or an experience. Sure. That's, that's essentially what it is. So I think now when we speak of brands, we think of this, again, these corporate constructs, but that's just one version of that. Yes. The country is also a brand. Brand Australia is a very interesting uh, absolutely. brand. So there's, there's very many ways to look at this and, and a lot of them are just part of how we function daily. Right. Well, I want to get back to that because I actually have more questions that I think would be helpful to some people, especially about branding themselves. But what I thought was fascinating was your talk yesterday because you talked about something very, very different, <laughs> but you also very subtly used it as a metaphor for for story in some ways. So uh, I wonder if you could share that story with us and how did you get involved in this very specific craft mm. <laughs> that you got? And explain what it is because our audience may not know yeah. what that is. No, happy to. Um, Kintsugi is essentially the art of um, repairing, um, typically repairing, uh, something that's been broken. Okay. And it's very, very associated with uh, pottery uh, that's connected to uh, tea ceremony because Kintsugi can actually be traced back to Japan and very specifically to Kyoto mm -hmm. where it started. And it started in connection with the tea ceremony and the, the, the chawan, the, the tea cups that were made um, at, at, at a long, long time ago. Um, and I think I got interested in it through a friend who had made something and broken something and then a whole conversation started on learning to put it back together. And the shortcut of Kintsugi, the brand of Kintsugi, mm -hmm. is that people think of a crack being fixed with gold because that's what it visually looks like. Right. Um, so you see like a broken vase or a pot or a cup and it's got these cracks and gold veins in. inside exactly. of it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And that can go into many different layers or levels of how filled or how thin or how 
sophisticated or how uh, kind of playful even. Sure. Um, and what I found Kintsugi to be is uh, like oftentimes um, there's a lot behind the brand or that's a lot, there's a lot behind the first impression of the brand. And what Kintsugi is, is a very arduous and uh, enjoyable, but arduous and, and tenacious process of um, putting those pieces together back with Urushi, which is a tree sap mm -hmm. uh, of a tree that again is very uniquely from Japan, even though it, it grows in a few other places. Mm -hmm. um, and that tree sap is over many different iterations and different layers. Uh, made to coalesce again the piece that was broken or cracked or, or chipped mm -hmm. and uh, that eventually becomes such a smooth surface that connects the piece ever more strongly and um, the, the gold finish is a signifier of food safety for example or of, of quality of, of a certain level of uh, upgrading let's say the piece. So the gold isn't actually the the glue, the gold is the, the gold is not the glue at all. It's no. the veneer that's on yes. top of it. <laughs> yes, like in so many things, the gold belies the hard slog. Right. So that's uh, yeah, that's also so the, the sap case. serves the sap serves as a glue in a lot of ways, right? Yes, the sap is, um, and and what I mean with ever strong is that it's ever hardening, so it will never be as fragile as it is now because it will be much harder in a hundred years. Oh wow! So it's actually a substance that becomes stronger with time, not weaker. So it's really fascinating concept. How long does it take to dry? <laughs> it takes weeks, depending weeks. on the conditions, okay. uh, and then it can stabilize further if you leave it a little bit longer. So you you have to play with uh, with the malleability of the process right. a little bit. Uh, but the gold is also, I, I would like to say, there's kintsugi, which is with gold. There's gintsugi, which is with silver. Mm -hmm. And none of them are necessary. You can very well finish with urushi. Right. Yeah. And you were also talking about your allergic reaction to this. <laughs> Everyone was fascinated with my <laughs> extreme allergic reaction. I just happened to be apparently very vulnerable to it, yes. Right. And he said it was similar to like a poison ivy type. Thing, it right? is, yeah. Right. It's, it's in the family of the poison ivy, this particular tree, yeah. Wow, okay. Mm. Uh, what, what were you, how, how, you trained in this, right? Yeah, so I started about five years ago, very okay. casually, and then the pandemic. Right. So everything stopped, and then uh, I started um, deciding to be uh, much more uh, thoughtful and, and focused. Uh, on this learning. Uh, so as I said in the talk, I essentially learned how to be an apprentice. <laughs> that's, that's, it's, it's like white belt karate. Right. Aiming to yellow, I guess. Um, um, but I don't know what the scale is, so I, I wouldn't know exactly where to situate it. It's pretty initial stages. And I think in, in, in many crafts, I would say in Japan, but outside as well, um, you kind of plateau over, you, you plateau for long periods and then you, you jump up. You level. jump and yeah. then you plateau for long periods. So uh, I think the initial period is, is quite long. There's a lot to learn That's initially. I find it interesting, especially in Japan, there are many crafts that are Japanese that have levels and different dons that you get to, right? So I, mean, yeah. I spoke to uh, a wonderful person at last he issue and she was a calligrapher mm. and she was explaining to me the different levels and how she got to these yeah. different levels over time. Um, what do you feel that repairing is not all the same? So 
once you get to different levels, do you feel that there is a different way of recon reconstructing a vase as you get, as you... I will come back to this podcast and tell you. <laughs> it's early days for me. But can you observe it yourself when you see other yes. people's work? Yes. I think that, like with many crafts, I think you get a little bit of a map and a um, few tools. It's almost like playing Zelda. There's okay. a map, there's some tools, you can pick up things, but you, every piece is unique. And I think the respect you owe to every piece, no matter how big or how small the repair, is that you, um, you probably start from a place of humility that you don't know how to fix that piece because you have not fixed it before. Right. So I, th I, I think that also contains a very wonderful surprise that every piece can be just very joyful because I don't know that you would ever feel that you've done it before. You really haven't. Right. So um, it, it's there's a yeah there's a never-ending story with uh, with this particular craft that I find very attractive. Yeah, and the it's never it's not the same as when it first was whole. Exactly. Yes. 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 And it's already been broken, so you probably give yourself some grace to say, well, it's broken. What can happen? Of course, we know what can happen is you break it more, but hopefully sure. you won't. <laughs> So that's what happened with now my semi-famous egg. How it, your semi-famous egg is mm. broken again. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll get back to the egg. But I had a bit of a strange... I was thinking about all these different metaphors that you had through this process and what you're doing and story. And I thought of Frankenstein. Uh, mm. How you basically is like, it's already dead. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. That wasn't really my intention. But I guess more close to some of the talks that we've had as well, more the idea that I think in some cultural contexts, people get over busy with newness, over busy with striving to have the one original idea. And I think what craft teaches you uh, that's incredibly freeing is that that's, a, that's not a good pursuit. The, mm. There's nothing wrong with starting from where somebody left. It's actually an honor to pick up what has been started by others and hopefully to not leave it worse right. than, than you found it. So I think that that is creatively incredibly freeing. And I think that the metaphor of Frankenstein comes from that idea that there's an original being and then there's this other thing. Right. But in other um, places, in other areas of thought, that's not exactly the construct that we operate from. Uh, and it can be this, this other version of creativity, which is much more, a much more sympathetic shoulders of giants, if you will. Um, sure, sure. Idea. But I still remember the vase that was missing its bottom mm. and how you tried to figure that out. Can you tell that story? <laughs> yeah, I bought, um, it's my own fault, I bought some vases that felt beautiful and, and you know, and, and they're very, very fine, um, they're very fine pottery. Right. So the, the walls of the vases are incredibly fine and they're tiny, they're almost like miniature vases. And what happened is that in quick succession two were broken and as would happen with um, breaking pieces of pottery for some reason is that there's always something missing. So you often have a hole when you put the puzzle back together. And this particular vase has a bubble shape at the bottom and half of it was gone. Oh. 
right. and I couldn't find the pieces at all. So it has a very thin, long neck and, and this bubble bottom and, and yeah, half was gone. And I was wondering if what would make sense was to find a way to reconstruct the bottom, which was the first discussion, is right. how to reconstruct something so fine and so um, quite a large area of this small piece. Um, but then I thought that uh, there's, to me, an underlying ethics of Kintsugi, which I hope I have understood correctly from my learning, uh, and that's the idea that you, things are meant to be put back into the world and serve a purpose again. And I've tried um, not to work on pieces that are just for visibility, just for looking at. I am trying to work on pieces that will be in use. Serve purpose. Continue to serve their previous purpose or maybe do something different. And this vase had a conundrum because the water would fall out. Right. Um, but then in handling the piece, and this is the part that you cannot script before, in handling the piece, um, the idea that when you put it upside down, it just looks like a little tulip. Mm -hmm. uh, and the tulip calls for another tulip. So suddenly the vase could function as a vase in a totally different way. And it still has, of course, the neck right. would drop water, but you can add a little saucer to it or a plate or another vase. And right. With maybe two vases or with two pieces, you have a vase again. So I ended up deciding not to fix the bottom of the vase, flipped it and um, finished it in line with its new uh, gravity. Right. And, um, and that was the story of that. So I, I do think it's a very fitting metaphor for some stories that you are incredibly busy telling with in one hemisphere and you end up living in the other hemisphere and sometimes you have to flip your story. Change the story. Yes. Say, say look at it from a different perspective in some ways. The opposite in this case, yeah. Yeah. And then you also talked about things that you hide in there that you know that are there that people don't necessarily know are there. <laughs> yes, yeah, so there was another vase. I have a thing with the, the, the base of vases at this point. There was another vase in the same vein, very small, very thin, broke easily, but it had a, um, a short neck and it broke in the neck. And then I realized that I was fixing it and it would break again because it toppled and the, the, the base was very uneven. So I decided to urushi the base in many different layers of urushi and drying and polishing mm -hmm. and drying and urushi and so on. And, um, and the, the, the bottom of the vase is the size of a 10 cent coin. Right. And um, what will happen is that the largest surface of gold in this vase is actually the bottom and very few people will ever see it. Um, so that's the story with the secret. Right. So now that you've gone through this journey, you've had this journey, how has it changed the way that you observe narratives? <laughs> I think it's really actually helped me see more these are not new things to me in theory. They are very basic parts of storytelling, right? And there right. are some of them very basic prompts and tools of storytelling. But I think that um, when we work on uh, words and abstraction for so long, we may forget the richness of reality. And rubbing against reality is always the best way to not only test your theory, but to expand it. So I think this has been a huge thought expansion. Um, and maybe what I'm surfacing now are the first things I've noticed, which are the, all the way story works in this construct. 
Um, but I hope in the future I will be able to surface the things that are not yet said in the richness, richness of this, this experience, because it's a very, very different experience and it's incredibly um, varied. And the world is contained in the small vase that you were busy with for months. Yeah. Uh, so there's, there's that aspect. What I also was thinking, you know, is today uh, we heard uh, Ryan talk about uh, remembering your story mm. and saying how, you know, people have a story, their own story. And then what he liked about what you're talking about, the vases, is that the cracks become a feature of the vase now. They've become the new position of it, as opposed to, you know, the old way that we used to repair a thing and try to super glue it so you don't even see that there's a crack, mm. right? And so uh, his then saying is like, when, you, when someone goes through an experience that breaks them mm. <laughs> to reconstruct, but not necessarily hide the cracks how do you what do you think about that, that i idea? thought it was beautiful yeah <laughs> i've been fascinated by how the speakers are so incredibly intelligent and uh, generous in their sharing but also in their weaving into uh, each other's stories sure uh, which has been such an amazing um the, what emerges is some kind of beautiful tapestry that connects us all so easily after these talks so i was really um moved by his uh image and I think it's an image that's really easy to understand. Sure. Uh, very fitting, um, maybe useful image for what many of us are going through as creators and, you know, especially post-pandemic and with all the struggles people have been through. I think if that's uh, helpful for anyone at all, that's really, uh, that's really good. I see this more as closer to the, um, closer to the things themselves and to uh, maybe um, trying to live less in a world of obsolescence and more in a world where these things are assumed. Um, very wise uh, Japanese people, and I'm saying Japanese before, because I live here and this is what I hear, mm -hmm. but very wise Japanese people will tell you that they cut the leather in a way that the usage of the leather would look good as it ages. Right. So the idea is not of obsolescence, is of some evolution. Maturity, yeah. And maybe we also need to get used to the thought that cracks are part of the yeah. usage and therefore they're not that you are broken or you know anything as final as that, but just the natural wear and tear of a piece or of a person. Yeah. And that, that there are ways to redress that and that some of them are much better. Yeah. So I think it, it all goes to into very close to what he was saying, but I would say even further than that, that there's no break in there except the normal, usual yeah. life. You life should happens. be the, the, the poster child for the right to repair movement of electronics. It is, it is. Yeah, it is. I, I do feel that there's a lot to be said for not letting things be as useless as to be uh, discarded easily. Right. So... To, to cherish what's useful to us and what's beautiful to us yeah. is, um, is a natural step. So I want to get back to, to the brand conversation and the story that people make about themselves. Um, having been at THU many, many, many times and hearing people talk about um, who they are and who they want to be, a lot of people who come to THU, especially the main event. Have you been to the main event? Not yet. Okay, oh. so there's a lot of young students, extraordinarily talented people that are sitting there trying to say, who am I, who am I gonna become, what am I doing? They put a lot of 
emphasis on their skill、mm. and their craft, and not, and they don't know who they are yet.、Mm. How? What would you say is a good way for people to discover themselves as a person and then make themselves a brand that people would observe? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if I knew that, I would probably write the book. Right.、Um, it's not easy, and I don't know that it's stable, which is another trick. People feel like this is stable, and then at some point they forgot or got a little bit lost, and then they are very. Stressed about it, and I don't think we are stable enough to say this is who I am and that's that forever, or this is what I do.、Uh, now we live long lives and we have long careers, and it's not very fitting to think you wouldn't change considerably during、sure. that time. I mean, brands evolve too, though. Exactly. Sure. And I also don't love the idea that we need to turn ourselves into brands. That's that's also tricky for me, but I understand it in the level of we need to know how to tell our story, and we need to know what in our story is useful or engaging,、sure. or you know,、uh, a good fit for others to to interact with or to work with.、Um, I think you're correct. I think people put too much stress on their skills, and they maybe can be more generous to themselves in being more.、Uh, Uh, clear about what they want, what they ultimately want, and that's a much harder question to solve.、Um, so I think definitely part of how we present ourselves is the company we keep, the things that move us, the thing, the stories that excite us,、right. the things we wish we could be doing,、uh, the dreams we have that we don't think are part of the work,、um, and I think all of those things together are probably. To me, better ways to gauge at what is really the talent of a person, what's really the value of working with a person, for example, rather than oh, I am level whatever of skill whatever,、right. which is ultimately something that if you really want to know, you will learn. Right. So my tendency is to think that truly smart people learn many things fairly easily. And that what differentiates it's the quality of character and the quest. What is the longing of this person? What will they fight to do? What will they really strive? What will they learn overnight in order to do X, Y, or Z? Yeah. And I find that those questions are more interesting. They're a little bit more essential, and they may be even harder, but they are more meaningful. And I think they work faster to find your people, to find your tribe. In、right. the words of THU. Yeah, I I agree,、um, but I think you know, in in the days of Instagram, people what, are eager to find a brand for themselves、mm. they can put out there. My art is this, my art is that, or、yeah. and and here is my style, here is what you do, and、um, I think that's also fascinating. And what has been very disruptive as of late is. That especially with、uh, generative AI, people's brands are people feel that their brands are being stolen <laughs> from mm, them, mm.、Uh, and they're not able to do that. I had a conversation with Mark Simonetti,、mm. who says, "If you look up my name, you'll see hundreds of works of art that are not mine that other people made using my name as a prompt, <laughs>、mm. and that brand is 
damaged, mm, <laughs> according to mm, him. Mm. What, what is your thoughts about how some of these AI tools are going to change how people see people's stories and people's ways that they observe things? Yeah, it's, it's a tricky moment. I kind of wanted to go back to the Instagram one first to say, sure. <laughs> some time ago, I was working with a very good, very talented art director, uh, art director and we were looking for an illustrator. And we looked through Instagram, as you now find the best portfolios easily, mm -hmm. in, among other places on Instagram. And uh, a lot of things looked exactly the same. And I'm sad to say this was pre-generative AI. And there was one illustrator whose name I sadly forgot, but I'll, if I look it up and I find it, I'll, I'll send it to you so you know, the, the, the listeners can, can know what it is. Uh, but there was one illustrator that had this work that was very odd, and it was a little bit of a reference to Daniel Buren with so lots of stripes and very flat colors, but also some Greek motifs. And it was incredibly unusual. And we had a few conversations about illustrators and a few people that looked very logical. And we kept coming back to this one portfolio that was the only one we remembered. Right. Because it was so unusual. And it's not to say it was exactly what we had planned or this was 100% of a fit. It just felt like there was a, an actual interesting person behind it because we couldn't mix it with the others. So by default, that one was the one we called first. Right. And I think that that's maybe the first thing to be said, the danger of wanting to be a brand is that there's also a very large mid-level um, on that as a quest. I think a brand emerges. Sure. And it's a bit the conversation of branding. A brand will be as good as your company is good, as your products are good, as your employees are treated, etc., right. etc. So I think there's always a bigger discussion. You don't make a brand, you surface it through who you are, through what you love to right. do. I think that the other question is, to me, from a creator perspective, interesting because I think we will see more quantity of things. Um, but I think that the salience of art and of creativity has always been a few different things. Taste, uh, courage, um, just imagination. So I think we will find that those are still the things that in large scale or small scale, the things that will surface will very likely be still the same. So it sure. might have more to sift through or less to sift through, but I have a feeling that the tool has never been the biggest differentiator on the quality of the writing, for example. Right. It's not been on whether you write by hand or by typewriter or by laptop. Right. It's been on what you write. Right. And I think that that ultimately will be the kind of the equalizer or the corrector of the, the current situation. And do you think that, I mean, some of the things, I mean, obviously there's been a lot of discussion about um, the goods and bads of AI tools, but honestly speaking, you know, I did be, you were saying on Instagram, it will all look the same, right? Uh, but what was interesting to me when you look at some, some of the stuff that's been done with, with AI uh, generative art tools is that apparently people have some crazy ideas that mm. they were never able to yeah. draw because they didn't have a skill set to do it. Mm -hmm. And they just now have a way to visualize it and create it in some ways. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's why they stand out. Like mm -hmm. the same, the person obviously that you talked about who stood out in your group, mm. 
has something interesting about him as a character or her as a character yeah. that was different. Yeah, I think that anything that gives people access to do what they love cannot be entirely bad. Um, right. I think that learning the rules of engagement with others' creations, for example, or learning to um, be, instead of appropriative, to be collaborative, learning to be, I guess, uh, also to understand what's uh, an homage versus a rip-off. Right. All of this is navigation. Sure. Um, new tools tendentially have frightened us, generally, um, but they, they, there's, there's, there's good things to say about more people being able to do, to eventually to create what they love. I do think that we are still in search of a creative vocabulary for what's happening, and we are still confusing mock-ups with finished work, etc., etc. So I think at some point we will find a, a better. Over time, we will find a better, uh, I guess, a, a better path to put these these things. But I think typically, when meaningful meaningfully scalable new tools arrive. There are these questions emerging constantly. And eventually the quality of craft and artistry and of thought tend to come up. Sure. There's always been median stuff. It, there will continue to be median stuff. Maybe there will be more median stuff. But that's not new. That's sure. always been the case. Sure. Now, having studied art quite a bit yourself, uh, how, how are the things that you have learned through your, your, what you've done with uh, repairing pottery or things that we talk about in terms of actually even brand in itself, what are your thoughts about how pop art, especially with Andy Warhol, mm. how he operated mm. in those realms and what, like, how does that relate to those types of things? Yeah, that's such a fascinating uh, point. I think, yeah, I, I spoke about this a little bit in the q and I. I think Warhol was, of course, on that side of extreme conceptual. Right. In which he apparently had a stamp with his signature that he gave to various friends so they could stamp artworks. And this doesn't mean they could stamp any artwork. They could stamp the artworks that they collectively made. Right. in one place, right? So there was an authorship. And so, if you go back in history, apparently uh, Rembrandt would have had a studio that worked very much in the same way. Works would be signed Rembrandt, but somebody did the clouds, somebody did buildings, and somebody else did the water. And there were specialists for different things in the paintings. Right. So a part of it, I think, shocked us because what comes out of it is not one unit, but many units, right? Potentially infinite units. You can, you can keep printing those um, those uh, pop art uh, icons forever. Right. Um, I do think that what I learned is, in a funny way, to me, a bit of a full circle to Warhol, because as he was hyper-conceptual, he actually got there through, through craft too. He was known to be a master um, um, uh, drawing master, mm -hmm. and he drew uh, almost extensive, almost like to the point of insanity for, mm. uh, for the clients he had um, before starting to do the factory and his own works. Right. And I think that what I've uh, accessed a little bit through my apprenticeship is that um, the concept really arises from the effort, from the, from the hand. So it's not a mental definition of what the piece should be. It is the the working on the piece repeatedly, 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 that eventually 
arrives at the best shape. And I saw it a lot in Gato-san's uh, conversation mm -hmm. when he's talking about what he keeps and what he lets go. And that's out of making a thousand bowls of, of uh, tea. Right. So I think that the Warhol's position, funnily enough, doesn't strike me as that contradictory because what he arrived at were synthesis of what, of powerful images, very, very distilled. Right. But he played with all of it before, and he did all the drawings before. But they all have stories too. And they all have stories too, exactly. Right. So I, I don't know that I now see it so differently. I do feel like there's no, um, or maybe let's say, I feel like there's a better path to arrive at concept than to start from concept. I don't right. think art should be a proof of concept. I think art should emerge, or I think the concept should emerge from the, from, from, from the work. From the work. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm going to throw another one at you. <laughs> uh, and this is the most, I, I don't know why I still have this fascination for this person, but Jeff Koons. Mm. I mean, he barely touches his own work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And somehow his work just fascinates me mm. about how it's created, what it's trying to say, and how strangely polished porcelain mm. things are emerging out of. What are, what are your thoughts about his work and how that and uh, his brand. <laughs> so, right. Are you suggesting I should kintsugi something? <laughs> That'd be amazing. No, that would be fun. Yeah, I, I don't Can know. You take a puppy and put like we don't have. <laughs> we don't have a lot of examples of artists that use humor in that way. Right. Um, I guess in Japan, I can think of Murakami and then a few more sure. things. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know that I have a big opinion, and that's probably the worst you can say about a work of art, is that you don't have a huge opinion sure. about it. Um, but not in any terrible way, I just don't have a big opinion about it. And I haven't seen many of his works okay. uh, in, in real life, to be fair. Um, but I think, uh, you know, art is a broad church. A lot of things fit in, and as long as people are exploring and, uh, I guess, bringing their stories to the world, yeah they will find very, very different ways of doing it and they will find, and they will try to break the canon of what is possible and what is accepted all the time. Sure. So I think that that's very fair. Sure. I, I don't know that he's as revolutionary as Gato-san changing his balls and that's a funny one for you. Sure, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, okay, so I do want to talk a little bit about that, in a sense, and I'm going to do this with a story. When I was, um, I was working as a, as a CG supervisor on some big movie and a visual effects supervisor was, uh, I had several artists working under me that I had to get to work doing different things. And one of the artists was uh, struggling with certain parts of what they were supposed to do on a shot. And my VFX supervisor said, he's like, come here, I want to talk to you about stuff. And he went to CalArts. Right? Mm. And he says, I want to show you this block of wood. Mm. It's like, in my first year, we had to visualize how to polish and create and craft this into the most perfect block of wood possible or whatever its intent was and polish and polish and polish and polish and polish. And so his point was that I have to work with my artists and help them polish and polish and polish until the, what they do works, mm. right? And I said, that's interesting because I went to architecture school and if it ain't working, I throw it away and start over again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so what are your thoughts about that? And I want, I'm wondering how it relates to the story that you, the last part that you had, mm. which 
had small fractures that you had to sacrifice mm, and how yeah. when when to know to break it <laughs> yeah that's so interesting i think that we're always in this push and pull of um building to i wouldn't say destroy destroying but you build and you rise right and ryan was talking about it he scratched his storyboard or his drawings as a kid so much he had to there's a fascinating artist called William Kentridge mm -hmm. who's a South African uh, and he's worked a lot with animation and he, it's basically always the same paper and the whole story happens in the same frame so in the end the paper itself in through the video you see the paper has the scars of all the traces that and all the erasure that right. has happened in the same paper and that's maybe the distillation of the creative process it's really uh, this gesture of what you keep and what you let go of constantly. Um, so yeah, I think on the, on the last one, what I was trying to show, and it's funny because I have a video, but I couldn't bring myself to show the video. Of you breaking and it? I, ju I just had the still. <laughs> well, explain um, this, what was going on with that. So what was going on is that maybe the most meaningful thing that I learned in my apprenticeship that I felt is a metaphor for life so thoroughly is that when you are tiptoeing around a tiny crack and really trying to fix it with a little bit of extremely diluted urushi and trying to have urushi stick to, to itself, right, as, as you go, you might be wasting your time because every time you try to polish it, it kind of goes away again. So you're never finishing, you're never really fixing the crack, the crack is still there, the piece is not working, etc. And the hard lesson is that with some level of cracks, you should just break it. So uh, very few <laughs> apprentices want to <laughs> really embrace this and it's very trepidating. So what happened was obviously I went to Kyoto, obviously I bought some incredibly old piece of porcelain that had a crack. Mm -hmm. I navigated it somewhat properly. I knew that there was a crack and I knew, actually this crack had some seeped urushi from olden times and then nobody bothered to fix it because it just didn't stick. Right. So, uh, yeah, then it's a matter of finding an angle and um, trying not to break the good parts. So that's what happened with, uh, with that. And I'm still working on that piece, and, but it will get healed. And it will not break on that crack again. Right. It might break elsewhere, but not there. Not there. So that's, that's the metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you just got to make sure it's completely broken. Sometimes you... you need to make sure that you can put it back together somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that's that's a that's a wonderful story. Thank you for, for for sharing those stories. And I think these are great metaphors in terms of people under identifying themselves and figuring out how to do things. And I really liked how Brian uh, Ryan sort of brought it together to his own life and his own identity in some ways. Um, but uh, yeah, thank you so much for sharing this stuff and thanks for coming to THU. Hopefully we'll see you again at other THUs. I hope so too. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, it's been lovely. Thank you for having me.